morning, the rejoicing, and we want to join in the parade, Father. We want to shout Hosanna and to say, God, save us because you are our only hope, because you are our redeemer, because you are our great king. And so, Lord, we worship you today with all that we are. If we had palm branches, we would wave them. Father, we come with our hearts rejoicing in you. And we ask God as we enter into this holy week, as we, like Jesus, stand at the edge of the Mount of Olives and look down into the city, as we enter into our new week, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to enter into all that happened to Jesus Christ on this week so that, Father, we can understand next weekend the greatness of his victory over death. Now teach us, we pray, Father, and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. God is good. All the time. That statement is qualitatively different, won't you agree, than for me to stand up and say, may the odds be ever in your favor. Somebody has read The Hunger Games. I uh, read it this week. I know I'm a little bit behind, but um, my daughter wanted to watch the movie, and so I watched that movie, and I couldn't help but notice the, contra- the comparison between um, Jesus who is going into the city of Jerusalem with great rejoicing and acclamation and approbation, and he comes into the city on Sunday, but on Friday they will march him out of the city and they will say, crucify him. And in that book and movie, children are chosen to compete in a national competition a fight to the death, if you will. It's a bit um, gruesome in its concept, but the idea is that, that they will give their lives um, to show that the government still has ultimate power over the districts. More significantly, I think by comparison, is the image of these children who are chosen. Nobody really wants to be chosen, to be entered into this competition to the death. But if they enter the competition, then they are treated like royalty for the weeks that precede the games. They are fed the best food, food like they've never had before. They wear clothes. They, they rest on beds so much better than their beds at home. They are treated with royalty, but all along they know that these children will likely die, that only one of the 24 will survive. And as I read the book this week and thought about Palm Sunday, I thought this is so like the Lord Jesus Christ entering into the city with praise, but knowing all the while that they are preparing him for his death. If we think about what God has done for us and we ask, as Paul does in Romans chapter eight, how can we know that God is for us and we watch the Palm Sunday procession, we get the feeling, don't we get the feeling, if we were reading the story or hearing it for the first time, we get the feeling that it's impossible for this one who is supposed to be our Savior, Hosanna, God save us, how can he save us if he is going into the city to die? But God sort of turns the tables in a cosmic perspective, doesn't he, by showing us that the way he saves us 
is by going to die. So how can we know that God is for us? Hear the word of the Lord, Romans chapter eight, verses 31 to 34. Let's stand together. This is the sixth in our series. The seventh will be on Good Friday evening. The eighth will be next weekend as we celebrate Easter together. Romans chapter eight, verses 31 to 34. You know verse 31. Do you know verse 32? You need to know. Lester says, and I agree, you need to know verse 32. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. You may be seated. God is for us. It's what Paul says. We remember and our students have beautifully shown us the picture of Romans chapter eight. They've shown us that God makes so many promises to us in this passage. We've been looking at them for weeks. I won't recount them to you because our students have done it well. What I would say to you is that even after we hear all of these great promises of God, we may like Paul's readers in Rome wonder aloud, how do we know that God is working all things together for good for those who love us? I mean, we've read that he he foreknew us and he predestined us and he called us and he justified us and he glorified us, but how do we really know that God is for us? And we feel a bit like Tevi in the Fiddler on the Roof. We We wonder sometimes and we say, God, we know that we are chosen by you, but just once in a while, couldn't you choose somebody else? And he comes to the conclusion, doesn't he? It's all against me. And we feel that way sometimes. You might be able to list this morning all the things and all the people and all the circumstances that are in the debit column for you. These things are against you, but Paul counterbalances all of those. We'll see it more fully next week. He counterbalances those with this simple statement, God is for us. And they say, but, but how do we know that God is for us? And he shows us first that God sacrificed for us, and second, that God stands up for us. It may feel like it is all against you. You may feel condemned or accused or charged and maybe you feel wronged today. Maybe it's that obstreperous neighbor or that obstinate relative or that, that impossible boss or that uh, co-worker who irritates you every day. It, it could be um, your own family or your finances or your physical condition, and you have listed, and in your mind, don't you, every day rehearse all the things that are against you, but on this Palm Sunday, I would remind you of the one who is for you, because the only one who really matters 
is for you. Let me show you how. First, he, he sacrificed for us and Paul shows us that, doesn't he? There's a series really of six or seven questions here that he asks back to back. He answers his questions with other questions and all the while he is rising to a crescendo that we will not reach until next weekend. But along the way, he says to us, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And notice he says, if God is for us. And we say, see what I'm saying? It's it's if and then he says if he did not spare his own son can I ask you is there any question about whether God spared his own son well of course there's no question is there any question that God is for us the word translated if in most of our translations it's just two letters in Greek ei can also be translated since and in context it's really since since God is for us who can be against us since God spared, did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all? Won't he also along with him graciously freely give us all things? Who is this God who is for us? He is the God who um, we have learned does not condemn us. He is the God who raised Jesus from the dead, who lives in us, who enables us to pray, who is our help and our hope. He is the one who is working all things together for good. He will not fail. He will prevail. This week I read a couple of books. It was a good reading week for me. And the other was um, called This Man Called Bull. It tells the story of Ernest Adams, the Rhodes Scholar back at the turn of the 20th century, the Rhodes Scholar, the um, archaeologist. He was one of those associated with finding those dinosaur tracks up near Glen Rose, Texas. He was raised on a farm there with great physical strength and great intellectual prowess. He went off to college and anchored the line for his football team in 1910 that was playing in the Texas State College championship and the two teams were the University of Texas you're not surprised and Baylor University I'm telling the story you're really not surprised and they're playing against each other and and Texas is winning no big surprise six to nothing but but when Baylor gets desperate in the fourth quarter they have to do something and their running back is not making any progress so they put Bull Adams in the backfield and hand him the ball and he runs for a touchdown because nobody can tackle him and now all they have to do is get the ball back but there are a series of how shall we say sports fans a series of unfortunate calls by the refs that really make it look like they're trying to help Texas to win. Certainly that couldn't be the case, but that's the way the Baylor players and coach felt. And so the Baylor coach in protest called all of his players off the field and they all left the field in protest except for Bull who decided to stay on the field and who taunted the Texas players saying, go ahead, run the ball. And on three consecutive plays, the Texas football team with 11 players played against one player on the Baylor side. I love this story. And and for three consecutive plays, they gained only a total of five yards against one player. 
At this point, the referee stepped in and said, well, you've already forfeited the game, so it's over. And they end. it's kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? Especially for those of us who love the green and gold. But Baylor loses because they forfeited the game. But I was telling that story to a friend of mine who played college football this week as we jogged along the bayou. And he said to me, how come I've never heard that story? Now, the skeptics in the crowd will say because it probably never happened. But no, it's, it's in the book, so it must be true. And And I read that story and my friend said to me, I don't know who that guy was, but I want that guy on my team. Anybody who is one who will take on 11, I want that guy on my team. Now imagine Jesus being marched into the arena called Golgotha and there and there he is surrounded by all the authority of Rome and all the opposition of the religious leaders. He is one against many and they succeed in nailing him to a cross, but they do not succeed. They couldn't stand him, but they, they couldn't stop him. And if we wonder, how do we know that God is for us? He says, well, he didn't spare his own son. Nobody coerced God. He willingly gave up his son for us all, for all of us, we can say with confidence. I may have left some doubt in somebody's mind last week as I talked about the fact that God loved us, but God is working for good for those who love God because God's love has an RSVP. But I want to say to you that the love of God is available to all. Not all receive the love of God, but the love of God is available to all. Jesus died for us all. And why did he do that? Some will say because he wanted to demonstrate the greatness of his glory. One student uh, appalled us when he went away to a conference and came back and prayed in one of our services one night. He prayed and said, God, it helps me to know that you didn't send your son to die on the cross because you loved us, but only because you wanted to increase your glory. We had a, a come to Jesus conference after the service so that we might correct his misinformation about the it is true that God was accomplishing his purposes and increasing his glory, but he did all of this because he loves us. For those of you who have read the aforementioned book, Hunger Games, you recall that the eldest daughter, uh, Katniss, has a, a little sister whom she's very protective of. And when they, when they, in this big lottery, call the names of the children who will compete and likely die in some unexpected misfortune, the odds are not in their favor because the little girl's name is chosen and she will quickly die. But before she can reach the platform, her older sister says, I volunteer. Let me go in her place, and perhaps you have to read the book to understand why she did that, but as we tried to explain it to our sixth grader this week, she did that because she loved her little sister, to which our Casey asked, you mean brothers and sisters love each other that much? (laughs) Well, of course. This sister loved her sister so much. Why did God not spare his only son because of his love for God so loved the world that's inclusive isn't it for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life and and so and so watch him argue from greater to lesser what he says is if God was willing to give up his own son won't he also along with him graciously give us all things. Don't miss this, that while God is giving us all things that we need, he gives us all things 
with his son. It's not just that his son receives all things. Don't misunderstand. It's that we receive his son and then we receive all things. And I would go beyond that and say, we can never appreciate all the things that God has given us until we rightly apprehend that God has given us himself. C.S. Lewis says, God cannot give us his best without also giving us himself because it's impossible for God to give his best without giving himself. It's why the psalmist in Psalm 16 verse 2 says, apart from you, God, I have no good thing. I have lots of good things, but apart from you, they are meaningless. They have no value. They are worthless apart from you, God. We have no good thing. It's why my friend Calvin Miller says, um, to live this life, I have to have God. I would really like to have my wife. And everything else is negotiable. I have to have God apart from you, God. How will he not also along with him He's given us him, and he also gives us all things. Uh, Matthew writes Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Get God. Whatever you get in this life, be sure you get God. And then all these things will be added to you. You seek um, heaven, C.S. Lewis says, and you get earth thrown in. But seek earth without God, and you miss it all. God calls us to understand that he is for us, and how do we know he's for us? If somebody says to you, how do you know God is for us? How do you know God is good and working for good? You can say, because he sent his only son. He sacrificed for us, so he must be for us. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He goes on to say that the very one who was crucified rose again, ascended to the right hand of the Father and ever lives to intercede for us. What is the question, the first question in in verse 31? Since God is for us, who can be against us? So let me ask you, who is against us? Who's against you? Who would you line up? You you say, well, there's this person or or that person or this circumstance or this, this consequence for past behavior or this health issue. This is all against me but what he says is if you look at it is there any way that that one who is against you is greater than the one who is for you who is the one he says who charges us and the biblical answer to that by the way is Satan it's in Revelation chapter 12 where we read that he's the accuser who accuses the brethren day and night. He never stops accusing us. We, we read about it in the story of Job, that he comes to God and accuses Job in the presence of God. It is his work. He is the great accuser. But, but Tabak has written, we all have our internal accusers, don't we? The one who charges us, the one who condemns us may be us. Or, or it, may, it may be an, another person um, Lewis Carroll says, um, I'll be the judge, I'll be the jury, says old fury to the mouse. I'll be the judge and I'll be the jury. I'll try the whole case and I'll condemn you to death. 
The truth about our sin, as we read earlier in the book of Romans, is that the wages of our sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. He has already made a way, Romans 3, 21 to 24, for us to be righteous not through the law, but through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can be made righteous. Who is he that condemns? It is God, he says, who justifies. Who, Who can charge us? It is Christ who died who is really risen again, who, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who lives to make intercession for us, Hebrews tells us. He's the one. You remember it, don't you, in the story of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verse 56, after they were standing to stone him to death, he lifted his eyes heavenward and he saw Jesus. The heavens opened and he saw the throne and he saw the Father and Jesus Not sitting at the right hand of the Father, but standing. And theologians and New Testament scholars ponder this. Why standing? He stands in his honor. It's as if Jesus is saying, if you will stand for me, I will stand for you. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 say, my little children, I don't want you to sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. We have one who stands in our defense. I I read this week about Richard Bowling, who was trying to get a project passed in Congress back in 1951. It didn't pass in his committee. It had little hope of passing. He stood up to uh, bring it to the floor of the whole Congress, the, the whole House of Representatives, knowing that he didn't have the votes to get it to pass, but he stood up and presented it anyway because he was trying to do something for his district, for Uh, his area of the country, and when he stood, um, nobody thought it was going to pass until Sam Rayburn, the Speaker of the House, came and stood beside him. But when Sam Rayburn stood beside his friend Richard Bowling, then the bill passed, and somebody asked Rayburn afterward, why did you stand beside Bowling? And he said, because I believe in Bowling, and he wanted it to pass. So I wanted it to pass. And the only reason it passed was because Sam Rayburn was standing up. I want to say to you this morning that God is for you because he sacrificed for you, but also because he stands up for you, because he intercedes for you. That's the word that he uses. Jesus Christ is not just up there in heaven doing nothing. He is interceding for us. It's the same word he uses, by the way, to describe the Holy Spirit praying for us. So, so get, this, get this straight. The Father is looking at you, and the Son is interceding for you, and the Spirit who lives inside you is interceding for you. Can I ask you, is there any way you can lose in this scenario? I think not. You say, but I can think of times where I lost, where I didn't get what I wanted. But what Paul is saying, he's not not saying everything in your life will always go well. The the traffic will part on I-10. You'll get that raise every time. Your your sister-in-law will finally get along with you. No, he's not saying that. What he's saying is, in the one arena that really matters, you win. Because... God sacrificed his own son for you because his son stands up for you. God is for you. I was turning off the computer Friday night um, and ready to go to bed and 
as I was turning it off, I couldn't help but notice on MSN the, the uh, title um, that said, um, Bear Saves Man from Lion. Now, I knew I wasn't going to get as much sleep as I thought I was going to get when I saw that line because I had to read the story. Did you see this story about Robert Biggs who lives in Paradise, Paradise, California? And he um, goes for a walk in the woods and he sees a mother bear with her cub and just enjoys that sight. And as he's walking away, he feels something jump on his back, uh, knock him to the ground. Whatever it is, is clawing at him and biting his backpack. And he realizes a mountain lion that was stalking the cub of the bear has attacked him. And he is fighting for his life and not thinking, he's 69 years young, he's not thinking he's going to win the battle with the mountain lion, but right then, something intercedes for him. The lion is attacking him and biting him and clawing him, but at that very moment, something intercepts the lion and takes the lion away, and he hears this fierce fight, and he lifts his eyes to see that the bear has attacked the lion that has attacked him, and the bear wins the battle, and the mountain lion runs away. And if you ask me and ask him why the bear would attack the lion, it's not because the bear just had such warm feelings for Robert Biggs. But the bear was very concerned about her cub and didn't want anything dangerous in the vicinity. It worked out well for Robert Biggs. And if you, if you ask me who is standing up for you, I would say to you that God is standing up for you. God is for you. Let me just say it this way. God is for you. God is for you. God is for. God is for you. Are you for God? God stands up for you. Will you stand up for God? Jesus walked all the way up Golgotha for you. Will you walk down this aisle for him? Let's pray. God, thank you for your amazing love and grace and power. Help us, Father, never to take your grace for granted. God, call us to yourself today. Show us how much you are for us. Lest we forget Calvary and Gethsemane and that you died for us. Lead us back to Calvary this week that we may walk where Jesus walked, that we may marvel at an empty tomb. God, draw us to yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.